Hello, wonderful people, and welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and uh, this is episode number 66, and it's part number seven of our series, uh, Setting the Bible Free. Uh, we're almost, we're, we're over halfway through this series. Uh, it's going to be 10 episodes, uh, and this is part seven. We've had a lot of interesting conversation so far. We have some more interesting ones to go. Uh, If you're wondering what exactly this series is, uh, you might want to hit pause, go back a bunch of episodes to part one, uh, where I kind of talk about the kind of the idea behind the series, what it is, where we're going, people who are coming on, potential topics, all those different kind of things, uh, kind of sets the stage for uh, what we're doing. So go back and listen to that. And then uh, jump back in or, you know, just listen to this and go back and listen later. I don't care what you do. You do you. You're your own boss. Uh, you can live your life as you as you please. Uh, but yeah, this is episode number 66, uh, part seven. Today we're talking to uh, a repeat guest who was my philosophy professor all the way back. Get in the time machine. Go back to 2000. Uh, my intro to philosophy class in college, uh, Dr. James Danaher, and uh, he's going to talk to us about the Sermon on the Mount and uh, some really good stuff uh, that he's going to share with us. I'm excited to share it with you. Um, Real quick though, patreon.com slash whatifproject. We have 22 patrons. Man, thank you so much. Uh, for your love, for your encouragement, for believing in me, in this project, this thing that we're building. Uh, Amazing and incredible stuff. Uh, Thank you from the bottom of my heart. I love you all. Even if you're not a patron, I love you. Thank you for listening to this. Uh, I can't thank you enough, but patreon.com is a place where you can go to support the show financially. So if this thing has encouraged you, inspired you, challenged you, even ruffled your feathers and made you mad once in a while. Uh, that's good. That's a stretching experience, but you can go there and you can support the show anywhere from $3 a month, which is like a cup of coffee, all the way up to $30 a month, anywhere in between, anything over that. Uh, there's different tiers, like different levels, and every tier has its own reward. So like a, a bonus blog post, a bonus podcast episode, a book that I mail you, all these different things. So go check it out. If you're able to give uh, wonderful. If you can't, that's okay too. No shame at all. Um, like I said, I love you all, but thank you to the 22 of you who are supporting the show. Uh, it means the world to me. Uh, also, What If Project Community is a closed Facebook group uh, where you can come in and find people who are wandering like you. Now, maybe you're not wandering. Maybe you are. I don't know. I don't know where you are on the spectrum of your faith, but this community is a place where people are expressing their doubts. They're asking questions. They're sharing their insights. They're sharing what they've learned. They're sharing resources. Everybody's in a different place on their journey. Uh, We have people in there who are like bordering on being atheist slash agnostic. We have people in there who have been walking with Christ for uh, their entire lives. We have people in there who are in this place of deconstruction where they're wondering, what do I believe? Where am I? Who am I? What's going on? Uh, other people are reconstructing. They're putting all their questions back together and building this new uh, kind of faith, discovering these new insights. Everybody's in a different place, but we're all cheering each other on and it's wonderful. There's over a hundred people in there. 
uh, it's it's awesome. I didn't think it was gonna be this cool, but I go when I go on social media, that community is the first place I go to to see who's saying what and what's going on and what I can learn, and it's just really good stuff. So go check it out, What If Project Community. Link is in the show notes, Patreon link in the show notes. But for now, like I said, uh, this is episode number 66. It's part number seven of our series, Setting the Bible Free. And uh, let's roll the tape with Dr. James Danaher. Enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. It is great to have you along for the ride today. So I'm excited because today we're joined by another repeat guest. Uh, you might remember my philosophy professor all the way back to the year 2000 at Nyack College, uh, Dr. James Danaher. So doctor, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you along. How you doing, Glenn? Good, man. I guess I didn't scare you away the first time. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's, it's always a delight. Uh, well, thank you. I appreciate your, your support. And uh, your encouragement of me and my journey, it definitely, it definitely means a lot to me. So thank you. Yeah. So for our listeners, uh, we are going to skip over all that basic introductory uh, material. As I said, Dr. Danaher was on the show earlier in the year. So if you want to hear more about him and his story, his background, you can go check out that episode. He talks about a fairly good amount of stuff uh, up front in the beginning. Uh, but today I asked him to come onto the show because in his last book, you might remember Truth, Prayer, Identity, and the Spiritual Journey. He had a whole chapter uh, dedicated to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount uh, from the Gospel of Matthew. He's also in the final stages of a book that's all about the Sermon on the Mount. And so today, I asked him to come on to the show and share with us some insights about the teachings of Jesus, uh, which come from what might be, I would think, arguably, maybe the most important passage in the Bible, uh, maybe any holy book on, on earth. So, Amen. Uh, Amen. Yeah, right? So, yeah. Yeah, so doctor, this uh, this series, uh, or I should say, the episode is going to fall into a series called "Setting the Bible Free," and uh, basically, we're talking about how the Bible is not this uh, inerrant uh, rule book that was magically written by the hand of God, but this beautifully, sometimes messy collection of letters and writings that somehow God inspired to show us what it looks like to walk with Him and evolve in our understanding of Him throughout throughout life, and so. What I wanted to do today is kind of give you the floor to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, and I have a few uh, questions to kind of guide us along. Sound good? Sounds great. Perfect. So my first question is, uh, why are you so fascinated with the Sermon on the Mount? I think last time I, I listened back to our episode, and you said something like uh, you were reading the Sermon on the Mount, and it just absolutely blows your mind. And so what exactly is it that fascinates you? And maybe for our listeners... Uh, what exactly is the Sermon on the Mount, in case somebody out there doesn't really know or isn't too familiar with it? Yeah, well, it's it's Jesus' longest uh, teaching. It's three full mm-hmm. chapters at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And it's uninterrupted. Jesus goes up on this mount, and he begins to teach. And uh, the subtitle of the book uh, that I have coming out on the Sermon on the Mount is uh, The Most Ignored Words of Jesus. And the reason why they're the most ignored words of Jesus is because my, my understanding of the Bible is that the Bible is God's revelation of his relationship with human beings. Mm. And in that relationship, 
he reveals who human beings think he is from their human perspective. And you see this in the early books of the Bible. Uh, there are tribal people, and they believe that God is a tribal God. Uh, he, he wants us to kill the babies in Jericho because they're not his babies. They, they live on the other side of the river. Hmm. And then eventually the prophets say, no, no, God is bigger than that. And he's the God of the whole earth. And you see this progression as our human understanding is evolving. Our concept of God is getting bigger and bigger. You know, dispensationalists uh, say, no, no, God changes his mind. No, no, God doesn't change his mind. <laughs> we change our mind. Uh, with Jesus, though, uh, he begins, you know, in, in the fourth chapter, at the end of the fourth chapter of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn nigh. And then he goes into the Sermon on the Mount. And I used to tell my students all the time, uh, you know, he's not from around here. You know that, right? Uh, this is kingdom stuff. This is not, uh, you know, it's not cultural. I, I got into a talk this morning at a at a Bible study, prayer meeting, whatever, and people were saying, well, it's good to understand the culture out of which it came. No, no. The culture out of which Jesus' words came is heaven. Mm. This is the kingdom. This is kingdom stuff. It's nothing like the world. Mm. And the things he says in the sermon are just unbelievable. It's also, I think the sermon is also a portrait of who Jesus is. It starts with the Beatitudes, and then he explains so much about the nature of who we're called to be in terms of our identity in God. Hmm. But unfortunately, it's totally contrary to who we are in the world. Hmm. And that's why I think uh, Christians shy away from it. They, they want a God who offers salvation and a promise of heaven, but now leave me alone and let me enjoy my life in the world. Hmm. And Jesus is always calling us into this deeper life and this identity in the kingdom. Uh, starts with the Beatitudes. If you just read the Beatitudes, this is nothing like what we think greatness is. Mm. It's about meekness. It's about humility. It's about poverty, about mourning. And Jesus is showing you who he is and who we are called to be. Mm. And it's just uh, revelation after revelation of things that we probably don't want to see. And I think that's why we ignore the words of Jesus so much, and especially the sermon. Yeah, that's one of the things I was gonna I was gonna comment on is that looking back, like all through uh, my time in church, and I went to a Christian school, you know, even college, like at Nyack, like I took classes on you know the Book of Romans, I took right. on the Book of John. Nothing on the Sermon on the Mount. Really, sermon on the Mount might have been like a half of a lecture, you know, something yeah. about it, but there was never like a real bulk of material on it. Well, I think it's because the things Jesus says, whatever your theology or your doctrine is. The words in the sermon will blow that up. Mm. You know, uh, Jesus says, if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. Mm. <laughs> really? How does like that to... <laughs> swing with, uh, you know, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth? That pre, that trumps uh, Jesus' statement, doesn't it? Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Jesus mm. says, if you don't forgive others, God's not going to forgive you. He says, judge not, for by the way that you judge others, you'll be judged. How cool is that? God says, God doesn't judge you. He allows you to judge yourself by the way you judge other people. So the judgmental will be judged judgmentally and the merciful will be judged mercifully. Uh, how, how cool is that? But that doesn't fit with especially evangelical theology uh, where it's just about faith. It's just about believing, you know, and if I believe the right things, 
I'm going to heaven. Now leave me alone. I want to enjoy my life. Mm. I find, I don't know if you, if this is your experience, but it's been mine that I've always found that the, the hard words of Paul, for instance, were taken at face value where the hard words of Jesus, like the ones you just talked about were often yeah. explained away. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Right. Like there's gotta be a different meaning than this. Yeah. And yeah. I think, I think the sermon has to be, it's like the parables. A, a parable is a story. And Jesus says the reason why he speaks in parables is so people won't understand. And you go, why wouldn't he want people to understand? Because he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And the, the idea of a parable or a story is, okay, what's the deeper meaning? What's the deeper meaning? Moby Dick is not a story about a whale. I mean, it is, right. but there's a deeper story going on. Hmm. And that's so, so true of the sermon. Hmm. Uh, Jesus says, you know, in, in uh, the first half of the fifth chapter of Matthew is about the Beatitudes. But the second half is about the law and the prophets. Hmm. And Jesus says he didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. And of course, the interpretation, the, the evangelical interpretation is, yeah, the fulfillment is Jesus dies on the cross and he pays for our sins. End of story. Hmm. I'm sinless now, which means I'm righteous and I'm going to heaven. Hmm. And I don't think that's what that means at all. Because hmm. right after Jesus says that uh, he, he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, he destroys the law six times in a row. He says, you were told by the ancients, and he's talking about Moses, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, resist no evil. Just turn the other cheek. Suffer the violence without responding. Uh, that's destroying the law. Mm. So what's going on? Mm. And I think what's going on as you read through the rest of the Gospels is Jesus is telling us, listen, obedience was never the purpose of the law. Uh, it's just like the analogy I use is when you're a little kid, you think all your parents care about is obedience. Do this, do that, do that, you know? <laughs> and you think, wow, they, they just want to bully me and push me around. And when you get older, you realize it was never about obedience. The reason why they were telling you to do these things was because they wanted to make you into their likeness in terms mm. of virtue, in terms of character. Mm. And that's what Jesus is talking about. The end of the law, Jesus says, is to love God with your whole heart, soul, and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. It was never about obedience. That's what the Pharisees couldn't get. Hmm. The Pharisees said, we're righteous. Why? Because we're obedient. We're living according to the law. And I've heard scholars say that the, the Pharisees of Jesus' day probably kept the Jewish law better than any Jews who had ever lived. But Jesus is telling them, it's not about obedience. The, the, the story of the prodigal is Henry Nouwen says, if you get the story of the prodigal, you get the gospel. The one son does it right. He's good. He's obedient. And that turns out to be bad. And the other son does it wrong. And that turns out to be good. Why? Because he learns about the father's mercy. And that's the whole project of the gospel. It's mm -hmm. to make us into his likeness in terms of mercy and forgiveness and love. It's not to be obedient. Uh, and we want to stop there and say, no, no, I'll, I'll follow the law. But I'm not going to get into this stuff of loving my enemies. I'm not going to get into this stuff of giving to all who ask uh, and resisting no evil and just suffering violence without responding to it. That's, mm. that's going too far, Jesus. Mm. You know? Somebody asked me the other day, they said, you know, in the midst of all of your 
questions and your shift in your faith and, you know, deconstruction, reconstruction, what is it about Jesus that makes you stick with, with him? And I said, you know, Jesus, like the Jesus way is just so compelling to me, especially what yeah. we see here in the Sermon on the Mount, because oh, God. He, he is yeah. victorious, but the victory didn't come through the victory of the world. Victory of the world is exactly. through powers, through sometimes revenge, yeah. it's through overcoming your enemy. And he overcame the enemy, quote unquote, but he did that through weakness. He did exactly. that through it's, almost it's, defeat. It's so beautiful, yeah. but you can't see it from who you are in the world. I huh. think that's the connection to prayer or, or what, I'm, what I call prayer, that deep contemplative prayer where you get into that silent presence, where you're experiencing God's presence and you, you experience that so much that you start to identify with it rather than the world. And when you do that, all of a sudden you see the words of Jesus and you go, oh, my God, they're the most beautiful words I've ever heard. Of course, I can give to all who ask. Of course, I can love my enemies. But you can't be in the world and see the beauty in that. I, I was at a prayer meeting one time years ago and a guy said, you know, I, I love the Bible, but that love your enemies stuff, that's a bit much. Yeah, I know. It's kingdom <laughs> stuff. This is about talking about the kingdom. It's not talking about the world, you know. Mm. And do you want the kingdom? Well, yeah, we want the kingdom after after this life, but not right now, mm. you know? Yeah. And of course, that's what Jesus is calling us to. That's so good. So you talk in the book about uh, how the Sermon on the Mount is this call for us to uh, repent of the ways in which we have adapted to the world oh, and the ways in which we have created a life that will thrive in the world yep. rather than the life that is created for God's kingdom. Now, when I see the word repentance, that, that word's got a lot of baggage to it for me. Right, right. And I always think of, and I've been taught that it means like turn from my sin, like a very specific right. sin. Uh, confess, and be remorseful. Yeah, right. confess the secrets yeah. I have in my life. But you're after something else here. So oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's the word, the word that is almost always used in the Gospels for a uh, repent is metanoia. Metanoia has actually become an English word now. It's the Greek. It means uh, change your mind, change mm. your mind. And that's what Jesus is talking about right before the Sermon on the Mount. He says, repent, change your mind. I'm mm. talking about the kingdom now. We're not talking about the world anymore. That was Moses. Moses told you how to be in the world. I'm telling you how to be in the kingdom. Mm. And uh uh, my my sister-in-law, a couple of uh, weeks ago, I posted something, and she said, no, no, I, I repented once, and Jesus forgave me for all of my sins. Yeah, but it's not about what we consider sins that he's asking us to repent about. It's about who we think we are. You're not who you are in the world. I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a professor. I'm not an author. I'm his beloved son. Do you identify with that? Do you really get that? You know, that the God of the universe is my father. Wow. I, you know, in the, in the sermon, Jesus says that 16 times in the sermon alone. Uh, he says it 27 times throughout the Gospels. But in the Sermon on the Mount alone, he says, our father, your father, your heavenly father, uh, 16 times. Hmm. And, and we just, we read through the sermon, and did you see the 16 times he said that the God of the universe is your father? Mm. Oh, really? Uh, didn't see that. <laughs> well, you're supposed to, when somebody repeats something 16 times in the period of those three little chapters, that's supposed to mean something. He's calling us to this new identity. Uh, mm. And the saints, historically, when you look at the great Christians throughout the last 2,000 years, 
they're the ones that got that. They identified with who they are in God, not who they are in the world. Hmm. You're you're retired now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's uh, very good. It's very good. <laughs> so, Mike, I'm curious as you as you were just talking about, you know, how repentance is about stripping away those those labels. Like, I'm not I'm not a right. pastor. I'm not a professor. I'm not an right. author. Now that you're retired and you don't have necessarily those titles of um, professor and like head of the philosophy department and those kind of things. Do you find that as you look back on your life, that maybe those were at one time labels that were um, big identifiers for you? Oh yeah. And they held me back. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're the things that, uh, you know, it it puffs you up. It it makes you think, uh, you know, look at who I am. No, that's not who you are. Uh, no, that's what you have to repent of. Uh, who you are is God's beloved son. Mm. And uh, also, you know, Jesus says, uh, we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and our neighbor as ourselves." But we don't start out there. We start out, I'm number one. There's a German expression that says, I'm number one, I'm number two. You're, you're a distant third, you know? Uh, <laughs> other people come as a distant third. And the whole transformation that God is calling us to is to get ourselves out of that first place mm-hmm. and even out of that second place. You know, Gail Sears, I don't know if I mentioned this the first time we talked, but Gail Sears, the football player, yes. uh, he's in the Hall of Fame. Uh, he, he, he wrote a biography years ago, and the biography call, is called I Am Third. Uh, he also did the television uh, movie that became world famous called Brian's Song, about his relationship with Brian Piccolo. The two running backs for the Chicago Bears were Brian Piccolo and Gail Sayers. Hmm. They were also the first black-white roommates in the NFL. Hmm. And Brian Piccolo got cancer. And the movie is about his relationship with Brian Piccolo and, uh, and how that brought him into this deeper life. And he said, you know, he, he was an All-American out of Kansas. He was all-pro football hall of fame. He had wealth, power, prestige. He had everything. And he said, life sucked. And at one point he said, he changed his priorities and he put God first and he put other people second and he put himself third. And he said, once he got himself into that third place, life got good. Hmm. And, and we have to get in that third place. And when we get in that third place, all of a sudden the words of Jesus make sense. Hmm. But when we're in that first place or even in that second place, you just go, Jesus, that's not how the world works. Mm. You're talking crazy stuff here. Yeah, mm. he's talking kingdom stuff, you know. Mm. So what would be your what would be your words of wisdom for our listeners who um are maybe, you know, in the in that place in their life, they're in their twenties, their thirties, they're trying to figure out who they are, they're building up their identity. Um, yeah. if you could go back to your twenties and thirties, knowing what you know now, what what would be what would be different? Oh yeah. Uh uh, there's two things. Let me do the, the last thing first. Yeah. The way the Sermon on the Mount ends, uh, it's unbelievable what Jesus says. And I think these are really the most ignored words of Jesus. <laughs> he says, in that day, this is the end of the seventh chapter and the end of the sermon. He says, in that day, there will be, be, there will be people who will say, but we did miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We prophesied in your name. And he says, Depart from me because I never knew you. Mm. He doesn't say you never knew me. He says, I never knew you. I don't know if uh, in the intro we didn't talk too much about Plato, but I used to do the dialogues of Plato. 
And, uh, and I also did Philosophies of Love at Nyack. And one of the things that is just so cool about Socrates in the symposium, the symposium is about love. And it's the only dialogue of Plato where Socrates at the beginning says that he, he knows what love is. The subject of the symposium is love, Eros. Uh, and he says, uh, the, the philosopher Diotima, who turns out to have been a woman, uh, so he thinks in this enormously Greek uh, sexist culture, he thinks the greatest philosopher he ever met was a woman. And she had told him that what love was, and it's the desire to impregnate the beautiful and bring forth offspring. And uh, I think that's what the words of Jesus are supposed to do. They're supposed to impregnate us and bring forth life. The words of Socrates to his students were always trying to bring forth new life. He loved his students and wanted to impregnate them with his words of wisdom in order that new life would come forth within them. And that's the words of Jesus. Mm. And I think the way we go forward in this Christian life is, are you ingesting, are you internalizing these words of Jesus? Uh, are they becoming part of you? And, and are they the things that are at the base of your being? Mm. It's not something that you, it's not about believing certain doctrines or beliefs. It's about, do you fall so in love with the beauty and the goodness of Jesus' words that you want to build your life upon those words? Hmm. Uh, and I think that's the real key to the Christian life. And if I was starting all over again, that's what I would do. I would listen to the words of Jesus, listen to the parables, and let those things really seek deep into the heart of who I am. Hmm. And I think this, the second thing is contemplative prayer. Uh, you know, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the sixth chapter, uh, first half of the sixth chapter, Jesus talks about three uh, spiritual activities of almsgiving and piety, you know, prayer and fasting. And he says the same thing about all three of those spiritual activities. Hmm. He says, don't do them in public. Don't do them in public. Don't do them in public. When he talks about prayer, he says, go into your inner room, shut the door. And I think the, the deeper translation of that is go into your own soul, uh, get alone with God physically. And it's not about words. It's about just spending time in that silence and just identifying with the presence of God, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and th unfortunately that's a thing that you can't do when, you know, when I was, uh, at NIAC, I, I had another full-time job on the other side of the river. I was head of arts and sciences at a college in Westchester, and I was head of philosophy at NIAC. And, you know, if you live in the New York metropolitan area, you need two full-time jobs to, <laughs> to keep going. For sure. Uh, but I, I didn't have the time for, to just get alone with God. Mm -hmm. And I remember at one point, uh, this is about 25 years ago, 30 years ago, it's when I really started a contemplative practice, which now... I spent four or five hours a day in, in contemplation. Hmm. But back then, uh, I had two jobs, and I was an elder in a church, and I had a wife and two kids, and I felt Jesus telling me, I want you to spend Saturday afternoon with me. Hmm. Just get alone with me. And I was like, oh, God, I, I can't do that. <laughs> right. I, I used to take papers to grade papers in church. You know, no, I'm listening. I, I heard what he said, you know, <laughs> and I'd be grading papers there. But I did. I did it on Saturday afternoon, and I, I would just get alone with God and go in my bedroom, and I'd uh, 
somebody at Nyack once said, uh, the best thing Danaher ever said was taking a nap in the Lord. Because sometimes <laughs> I would I would be back there and my wife would come in the room and she goes, you're not praying, you're taking a nap. <laughs> yeah, I'm taking a nap in the Lord. <laughs> you know, And that's what happens sometimes. You get into that, that silence and then you fall off to sleep. And then you mm-hmm. come back and you, oh, it's just the, the greatest thing in the world. But it's hard to do when you, you're in the middle of life mm-hmm. and you have a job or two jobs and you have a church. And how do you get alone with God and really hear from God? You know, uh, when he talks about prayer, he says, uh, don't use words. Your, your father already knows what you have near to, need of. I was talking to some people this morning at this prayer meeting and we were talking about the Lord's Prayer. And it's not a prayer to God. It's a prayer to us. God, Jesus says, God already knows what you have need of. God knows all this stuff that you're mouthing, but you need to hear it over and over and over again. Mm. Our father, he's, he's our father. He's my father. And he's the father of those people on the other side of the river too. Mm. Yeah. That was going to be my, my question for you about the Lord's prayer is going off of what you said about contemplative prayer. If contemplative prayer is kind of what Jesus is maybe after at this point in the in the Sermon on the Mount, and if that's not so much about using words, but more about um, being alone with God in the quietness of your soul, which sometimes involves no words, and like you said, maybe even falling off to sleep, uh, then I was going to ask you, what is the deal with the Lord's Prayer, with all these these words, so to speak, to pray? But that makes a lot more sense if it's yeah. more for us than it is for God. Well, more often in the Gospels, it says Jesus went off to a distant place to pray. Hmm. Uh, then it then it says actual words only twice, and uh, they're both the Lord's Prayer in the eleventh chapter of Luke, where they ask him, "Teach us to pray," and he gives them the Lord's Prayer, and again in the Sermon on the Mount. But most of the time, it says that Jesus would get up early in the morning and go off by himself to pray. Mm. And uh, I heard a a pastor say one time, uh, well, Jesus prayed all night. And I responded by saying, yeah, but I don't think he had a lot to say. <laughs> you know, he's, he's just in being in the presence of his father. You know, that's what love is. Love is just attention abnormally fixed. I, I mm-hmm. love Ortega Gasset, the 20th century uh, Spanish philosopher, uh, who said that uh, love is attention abnormally fixed. Mm-hmm. And it's just so true. Uh, my wife, uh, we used to go out for dinner and, a lot of times she'd say, you're, you're not here. And I go, no, no, I heard what you're saying. And I could repeat what she said. But what she meant was, I'm not here. I don't, she doesn't have my attention. My mm-hmm. attention someplace else. I'm a philosopher. I'm in my head. Right. You know? yeah. and, uh, and all God wants is our attention. He just mm-hmm. wants our attention. And when you try to do that, it's very difficult, you know, to mm-hmm. come into that silence and just say, okay, God, I'm just aware of your presence and nothing else. And within 15 seconds, something comes into your head, something you forgot to do, something you have to do tomorrow, something, mm-hmm. some distraction. And uh, uh, have you ever done Brother Lawrence's Practicing the Presence of God? I have, yeah. Oh, it's just a great book. And, yeah. you know, just, just being aware in everything you do of his presence. Mm-hmm. The God of the universe is aware of me right now, and I want to be aware of his presence. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it's very difficult to do when you're in the world. You know? That's for sure. Um, yeah. I just had a, I actually came across a quote this morning and as you're talking, I'm looking for it. Here it is from Richard Rohr. And he says, 
We're already in the presence of God. What's absent is our awareness of it. Exactly. Awareness. He just, uh, you know, he, do you do his daily meditations? I do. Yeah. I I had, uh, he posted one of my things a couple of weeks ago. Yes. Uh, I went to do it and oh, this, those words sound familiar. (laughs) This is really good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Not as good as Roy's though. (laughs) Uh, He's been doing Francis lately. Uh, Mm. Francis a sissy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's our awareness. God is. Um, that's why uh, I've heard evangelicals and and the you know the church gospel people talking about the manifest presence of God. Sometimes God really decides to show up. Mm. No, God is always there. Uh, the manifest presence is just about us becoming aware of it at a certain point. Yeah, you know, that's so good. That's so yeah. good. Uh, after our last talk, I was you had talked a little bit about contemplative prayer. And uh, I've been trying to weave that into uh, my mornings before I get my daughter up. And yeah. I've noticed that, like you said, sometimes I'll find myself almost dozing. Sometimes my mind is flooded with different things and I try to right. put it aside. But at the end of like the prayer time, I find myself a lot more, um, I feel like, ready for my day than I do if I just sit there and I just talk to God. Yeah. Stop. Like, I just I feel entirely different. Exactly. And I've been trying to take the Lord's prayer. Cause I know that I've been praying the Lord's prayer. Like when I was a kid, we used to pray it every night before bed. And so I've been trying to use the Lord's prayer, not so much as a prayer to God, but like you said, as a reminder for myself. So instead exactly. of saying, you know, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I'll say my father is in heaven. Yeah. Heaven is here among me and his name yeah. is. So I'll use it like as a reminder for myself uh, yeah. to kind of reorient myself around that contemplative time. Yeah. Yeah. And the silence, there's something that comes out of that silence. Uh, it's just unbelievable. Uh, the, the, the ancients called it muses, whatever, but it's, it's getting away from the world. Mm-hmm. And I think when we're away from the world, we're, we're in connection with the divine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of a sudden, from that perspective, the words of Jesus make sense. Uh, and I think that's the, you know, people have said to me, well, how do you know that the voices you hear uh, that it's really God. It's not other forces, you know? Hmm. Well, it's always about the words of Jesus. Right. Now, if that's satanic, oh, wow, he's, he's really, that's a stupid move, you know? Right. Uh, because it just brings you deeper and deeper into the words of Jesus. And that, I think that's the real transformation. Hmm. And uh, the, the Bible is the Bible. It's telling you how to be in the world. And I know it's popular because it doesn't call you to the things of the kingdom that Jesus does. Hmm. But the words of Jesus are completely different than the Bible. It's not, it's not one story. Uh, it's, uh, it's like Moby Dick. Yeah, hmm. there's a story about a whale. And it's a story about, you know, uh, blood sacrifices in the Old Testament and, and uh things like this. And then Jesus comes and dies on the cross and, oh, and he's the blood sacrifice. Okay. That's the one story, Hmm. but there's a deeper story that's supposed to bring you into the story of the gospel, Hmm. which is the story of the kingdom. And there's nothing wrong with starting where evangelicals start uh, in believing in faith and, and believing in Jesus uh, crucifixion. And that, that I don't believe that it pays for your sins. I don't think God, needs payment for, you know, the, the propitiation theory of uh, atonement is just, it's a terrible theory. Mm. Uh, God calls us to love sinners in the midst of their sin. 
But the propitiation theory says, but God, the father can't do that. Right. He has to get revenge. He has to get his, his honor was offended by our sin. And that has to be satisfied. Uh, that's just not who God is. That's not who God is at all. Yeah, one of the uh, biggest questions that kind of that came up in my mind with all of that was, you know, just the thought that if God is asking me to forgive my enemies, exactly. then and he can't like do that. Can't do what, what he asked me to do. It just doesn't, doesn't seem right. Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing, it's, a, it's an 11th century theory by St. Anselm, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Hmm. Uh, nobody for the first thousand years of Christianity believed that. Uh, the the early atonement theories because Jesus I, I don't know did we talk about this in the in our last talk I think it might have come up briefly go there okay. again yeah go for it I probably shouldn't uh, well anyway I'm Let's into go. it so you're, here we you're, go. Already, you're already Lord of sin <laughs> okay, God on. you want it <laughs> right uh, a guy I, I just saw a review of my contemplative book at Amazon and the guy you know gave it three stars and he said oh boy. this was the best book I I thought I'm gonna have to read this book several times. It's such a great book on prayer. And it said, until I got to chapter seven. And then chapter seven, he talked about this atonement theory. And he doesn't believe what we evangelicals believe about Jesus being a substitution for our sin and, you know, paying for our sin on the cross. And he said, so I, I recommend the book to people, but only read up to chapter seven. Don't read <laughs> Just the stop other. right after there. But, but nobody, the only thing that Jesus says about his, his death on the cross is I came to be a ransom for many. He never tells us who the ransom's paid to. He doesn't tell us anything more about it. Jesus never talks in the gospel about what the meaning of that cross is all about. Mm. Uh, so theories develop. And for the first thousand years, the theory was uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, they came under the control of Satan. And God, how is God going to get human beings back? Of course, God could have come in and just crushed Satan and take him back, but he wouldn't have been just then hmm. because Adam and Eve went over out of their own free will, and therefore they became the slaves of Satan, and so did their children. So they had the right to, Satan had the right to kill his own property, right? Hmm. Uh, the, the story that uh, Jesus comes into the world and dies on the cross when D Jesus dies on the cross, Satan becomes a, a sinner for the first time because Jesus wasn't born of a man. He's born uh, of the Holy Spirit and Satan becomes. So that's the first theory or variations of that. Hmm. Christus Victor. Anselm in the 11th century said, no, no, Satan never owned human beings. God's the only one that owned human beings. And what the atonement's all about is God's honor was offended by our sin. So somebody had to pay for that. So Jesus agreed to pay for it. And Jesus on the cross, the suffering that Jesus experiences on the cross is at the hands of the Father. The Father is pouring forth his wrath upon Jesus in order to satisfy his anger. You know, the wrath of God has to be taken away. Hmm. Uh, there is no wrath in God. The wrath is in our heads. Our first images of God is who God is, is who we would be if we were God. Hmm. and it's wrathful, and how dare you disobey me, and this kind of stuff. What, what the cross is all about, it's a picture of what forgiveness is. And what forgiveness is, is when the innocent suffers the offense of the guilty and says, it's okay, I'll pay hmm. for it. Hmm. And when Jesus is suffering on the cross, the Father is suffering on the cross as well, and the Spirit's suffering on the cross, and they're showing you what forgiveness is really all about and calling us to that forgiveness. Hmm. When somebody hurts you, did you see the uh, thing the other day on the news? Uh, the, 
the brother of the uh, woman in uh, uh, the brother of the murder victim in yes. Texas yep. forgives uh, the woman that killed his brother. Hmm. Then he even asks, can I give her a hug? And he gives her a hug and he tells her about Christ. Hmm. And this is what Christ is all about. It's hmm. about forgiveness. And that's what the cross is all about. And the father and Jesus are both suffering on that cross because that that's what love is about. Love says, no, no, I can restore this relationship. I don't have to hate you for what you did to me. Hmm. I can love you in response to your damage that you've done to me, you know? That's so good. And, but that, that takes transformation. You can't do that from who you are in the world. Hmm. You have to establish an identity in God to do that. Hmm. And that's something that takes time. It takes uh, surrender. It takes, uh, you know, repentance, change your mind, change hmm. your mind. I think that's such a beautiful description of atonement too, because I wanted you to go down that path with Anselm and stuff, because I knew you were going to talk about, you know, the wrathful God and things like that. But if you look at that, that theory of atonement, that's nowhere to be seen in the Sermon on the Mount. I know. Like the know. anger of God yeah. and, you know, Jesus isn't teaching us to be like that. Just another thing, too, about that. Uh, the only reason why that became dominant was Thomas Aquinas. Well, I, when I first published an article on this in the Irish Theological Quarterly, I don't know, 15 years ago or so. I read that uh, every week. From, I read that every week. <laughs> <laughs> a guy from the university of london yeah. uh came up with an article against me and you know he said he said danaher is attacking the most widely held doctrine in christendom mm -hmm. yeah but it's only because thomas aquinas accepted that that theory of atonement mainline catholicism and so did the reformers mm -hmm. but the franciscans never accepted it uh there were you know there were a whole ton of big time Christians that never accepted that theory that thought mm. that, that that theory is crazy. Mm. And it is, uh, uh, Jesus on the cross is the picture of what forgiveness is all about. And when we stand before it, we're transformed by it. Mm. Uh, you know, the, when, when I was, I was raised a Catholic, I even did a short stint at a Benedictine monastery, but, uh, they had crucifixes, you know, Jesus on the cross. And then when I became a born again Christian, they said, no, it's just a cross. Jesus is not still on that cross. Mm. And I believed that for 25 years. I don't believe that anymore. The idea of the crucifix is pretty good. Uh, people say, no, Jesus isn't still suffering. Oh yeah, God is still, God's a suffering God. Mm. And he continues to suffer with our suffering. Mm. Uh, and he calls us to suffering, to suffer with the suffering, suffering, suffering of the world you know uh and there's something about standing before a crucified god and being transformed by it hmm. and and seeing that this is what forgiveness is oh my god hmm. the god of the universe is able to suffer on my behalf hmm. uh in order to restore relationship with me yeah. nothing's more beautiful than that nothing's yeah. more beautiful than that you know I think in I think in the West and in, in our typical churches we we tend to demonize the weak, yeah. Uh, because oh. I've always been taught even even like even like in school you know it's always been about yeah. you know overcoming it's always been about being strong right. in your faith but you yeah. know Jesus said that he's in the eyes of the weak, exactly. And I think sometimes we we try too hard to not be weak when in reality that's where we find Christ. Exactly. You ever hear that thing at Christmas time, the solitary life? 
Mm. And it talks about uh, the life of Jesus. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born, never attended college, never led an army, never wrote a book, never did any of the things that we associate with greatness. And 2,000 years later, he's still the cornerstone of Western civilization. Mm. That's got to show you how miraculous this is. Yeah. This, this is God uh, interacting in the world and showing us how, how radically different God is from who we would be if we were God. Yeah. And that's the transformation he's always calling us to. That's beautiful. Yeah. Here's another quote for you. Uh, we're talking about forgiveness before. And uh, I just want to read this quote for our listeners. You say, the other thing the Pharisees and scribes got wrong, and many Christians today continue to get wrong, is that righteousness is about the avoidance of sin rather than the experience of mercy and mercy forgiveness, forgiveness through repentance. We are yeah. only righteous or right with God because of God's mercy, and we are only like the divine in that, uh, in that we are merciful as God is merciful. So exactly. righteousness then isn't about my behavior. It's not about me trying to be more like God, but what does this mean that righteousness is the experience that I have of mercy and forgiveness? Yeah. And it's not a one-time experience. That's what I really have against evangelicals, mm. you know? Uh, oh, I shouldn't say that I have against evangelicals, but it's not something that God forgave you and it's all over. No, sure. it's, there's, there's so much to this. You have to, Jesus says, those who are forgiven little love little. You got to get forgiven much. Mm. Well, what, what are you telling us? We should go out and sin? No, you already are sinning. But the sin is not the Ten Commandments. You're not loving God with your whole heart, soul, and mind, and you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. Mm. You're, loving, you're loving yourself, and you're loving the things of the world. Repent. Mm. Change your mind. That's how you come into the fullness of life God has for you, mm. you know? to just continuously experience that mercy and forgiveness. And as you do, you start to become transformed and start to become merciful yourself. Hmm. That's what it's, it's almost, all about. It's almost like a daily stripping away of those identities. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, hmm. one of my favorite things to, I used to say in class all the time is I'm a jerk. I'm a jerk. I'm a jerk. You know, it's on your Facebook uh, page now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> because you yeah, no, we don't have it together. We're, we're just constantly screwing up. But that's the beautiful thing about the gospel. Mm. Every time you recognize that, you get this sense of God saying to you, it's okay, Jim, I made you a jerk. Mm. So you would know my love for you. Mm. And you just, oh, God, oh, God, thank you for making me a jerk. You know, <laughs> uh, It's just the neatest thing in the world. Mm. That's such a different perspective than just trying to yeah. Almost earn righteousness. Right. Yeah. Do it right. Like it's such a Henry Nowen Henry says that uh, if you get the story of the prodigal, you get the gospel. Yeah. And if you don't get the story of the prodigal, you don't get the gospel. Hmm. You, you got to experience God's mercy hmm. and experience it on a daily basis. That's what transforms us. That's what makes us into his likeness. So last question for you. Um, we talked about a few different pieces of the Sermon on the Mount. We could probably do a whole series of talks about oh, this. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, if, if you could, what's, what's one thing from the Sermon on the Mount and all of your studying and you know, your, the, the book you just wrote and the things you've been thinking about in your own contemplative prayer time, what is one thing that you'd want to share with the listeners from the Sermon on the Mount that you think is just the most important? Uh, at, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, 
build your house upon the rock, mm. not the sand. He tells, you know, about people who build their house upon the rock and the storm comes. And he tells you what, what the rock is. And the rock is his words. Mm. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. And it's about his words abiding in us. That's the rock. And the sand, I believe, are the doctrines and the, the theologies that we create. We take this scripture and that scripture and another scripture and we piece them together. And we go, oh, well, this is what we have to believe. This is, this is the truth. Uh, those kind of truths change with time. What, what, what people believe today, what you see on television, is 200 years old. Uh, no, no Christians believe that for the first 1,700 years of Christianity. Uh, it's about the words of Jesus. The two things that run throughout the entire history of Christianity, the 2,000 years of the schisms and the different denominations and all of the, the schisms and the two things that are constant are the practice of contemplative prayer, the prayer of silence, and the words of Jesus. Mm. Build your life upon those two things. Prayer and, and prayer because it brings you in to the words of Jesus. The silent prayer gets you to a place where the words of Jesus make sense and you can see how beautiful and good they are. Mm. And it's not, you know, uh, what I'm constantly working with is this idea of truth. Jesus' truth is not something to know. Aristotle had said human beings are involved in the three activities of making, doing, and knowing. When we make, we want to make what's beautiful. When we do, we want to do what's good. And when we know, we want to know what's true. Hmm. We've inherited that. And we think truth is about knowing. When Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life, he's not talking about something to know. He's talking about something to be. Hmm. And it involves the beautiful and the good as well as the true. And it's, it's more, the, if somebody said to me, well, what is, what's the ultimate basis for your belief? How do you know this stuff is true? Uh, I don't know if this stuff is true, but I know that the words of Jesus are the most beautiful and the best words ever spoken. Mm. Nobody, you know, the scripture says, the, the centurion says, nobody has ever spoken like this man. Mm. Nobody has ever spoken like this man. People say, uh, you know, Gandhi says, I don't know about the historical Jesus, but I know that the Sermon on the Mount is true. Yeah. It's true. Why? It's the, these are the most beautiful words ever spoken. Mm. And build your life upon those words. Build your life upon those words. Uh, if, if, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Mm. And we want to say, well, the whole Bible is the words of God. No, it's not. No, it's not. Mm. Uh, the Bible never says it's the word of God. It's, it's God's, I believe it's God's revelation of his relationship with human beings. But John's gospel starts off by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Mm. All things came into being through him. Jesus is the word of God. And as you build your life upon his words, you come into the fullness of life of his kingdom. That's beautiful. Yeah, it yeah. really is. Glenn. The, I love that idea that the, the, the rock is the words of Christ. The sand right. is all the doctrines that we yeah, make exactly. out of it. And it got me, it got me, some, it got me some trouble a little while back. I... I talked on a podcast that I had put my Bible down for like six months because I just felt like I had so much baggage for me. Sure. And when I picked it back up, I just went to the gospels yep. and I only read the gospels and the sermon on the Mount for the longest time. Yeah. And it just changed my perspective on everything. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, wow. Jesus is at the center of it all. Yeah. And, and when, you, when you stop believing in the stupid doctrines, all of a sudden you can really love your enemies. You can love people yeah. that have other crazy doctrines because <laughs> it's about forgiveness, mercy, and love yeah. and, and being his instruments of those things. That's so good. Very cool stuff, Glenn. Dr. Dan Hurt, thank you so much for stopping by. Yeah, anytime and, uh, you want to do this. We're going to have you back for a round three. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> Absolutely, man. You have a good day. Okay, you too. God bless, Glenn. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.